chapter 6. We have a real, uh, as far as I uh, would look at it, it's a very joyful journey that we're going to make this morning. Um, It's just one big, long story, and uh, I hope it just absolutely thrills your heart to put your thoughts to these things and uh, just rejoice at the fact that these things have been revealed to us. And in a certain sense, like you can kind of enter into what it would be like to be a prophet. A prophet would uh, hear from the Lord and be able to see into the future. And in a certain sense, we kind of do that because that's what we're we're, uh, we're going to attempt to do this morning is to hear from the Word of God. And as we listen to it and meditate on it and try and picture these things, we're going to be looking into the future. And that's a privilege, you know, for, for us as God's people to have God's Word, to have God's Spirit, to have the ability, the opportunity to know those things which are still yet to come. And one of the things that's yet to come, which I hope will just, if anything just resonates with you as you leave here this morning, um, it would be this. this uh, there's a, a phrase in the Old Testament where the Lord speaks about how he identifies those who rejoice in his exaltation. That's a, that, that would be a great phrase when you just put on this whole message. To the idea of rejoicing in the thought of our Lord's exaltation. And in particular, his exaltation here. We know he's exalted in heaven, but the thought of him returning here, being exalted here, on this planet, in this world where he was so despised and so rejected and so resisted and, and uh, where he died, where he suffered such shame and agony that here in this place he would be lifted up and honored. And for us to put our thoughts to that and to look forward to that, uh, it should give joy to our hearts. Uh, Our hearts sink low in a certain sense. They sink low in grief when we think of his suffering, like we did this morning as we think of the cross. We just like, there's a melancholiness to it. Yes, there's a joy to it as well, but there's just a heaviness. One of the words that we sang was... uh, that he was uh, beneath um, the crushing load of sin. Beneath the crushing load of sin. And so we think of this aspects of his suffering, of his humility, in our hearts, just there's a sadness with that. Even though we know that what it was for, but we love him. <laughs> and to think of him um, as a curse, you know, it's... it's um, It's something that just brings a measure of sadness. So, as we think of him in that sense, it also should bring us great joy to think of him lifted up, to think of him exalted. And so I hope that we'll accomplish that this morning. But before we go into the future, we're going to use, kind of as a springboard to do that, uh, we have to go back into the past. And uh, so that's why we're here in 2 Chronicles chapter 6. And this is about 500 years after the children of Israel have come out of Egypt and uh, they've gone through the wilderness, they've come in, they've conquered the land of Canaan and uh, David's reign is over and now the son of David, 
Solomon is reigning. And David wanted to build a temple, a permanent structure for the Lord to dwell in, but he wasn't permitted to. The Lord said, your son will do that. And so we're coming in here at this timeline where that building, that structure, that temple, that house is done. And uh, what a house. I mean, <laughs> what a house this was. I, I always uh, uh, bring this to mind when I try to imagine the magnificence of that temple in all of its gold and all of its beauty, the architecture and just the creativity that went into it, uh, the magnificence of the structure itself. The one detail that comes to mind just to make the point very clear is that there was one thing in the temple that they covered with gold that might surprise us. And that was the floor. <laughs> they covered the floor with gold. So that's just to give you a little idea of what this structure is and it's, uh, the beauty of it. Uh, and so it's done. And so Solomon has gathered, many of the people are, are gathered there to the temple and he's dedicating it. He's making this wonderful prayer and uh, he's finishing up. And look what he says in verse 41. Now, therefore, arise, O Lord God, to your resting place. Second Chronicles 6.41. Now, therefore, arise, O Lord God, to your resting place. That's what the temple was. It was the resting place of God. As, as he's speaking these words, there's nobody in it. The Lord is not in it, but he's about to take his place there in the midst of his people in this beautiful temple, that's where his presence is going to be. And so it's his resting place. And Solomon has finished the work. He's now inviting the Lord to come home in a certain sense and to rest in this place that he has built for him. And then you go to chapter 7. This is such an intense scene. We're talking about worship. And here's another incredible scene of worship in the history of the nation of Israel. As I said last week, they, they weren't always characterized as worshipers of God. Uh, but in these moments like this, we just uh, we want to kind of uh, just uh, stay here for a little while and think about uh, this glorious scene. It says, when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven. And when you think about uh, this fire coming down from heaven, I don't know how fast you imagine it coming. I imagine most of us think of it as just you know coming down like that. Uh, I entertain the thought, what if it didn't come down like that? What if it came down kind of slowly, relatively slowly, and the children of Israel look up and they see it coming, and it's getting closer, <laughs> and they're wondering, where is that fire going? <laughs> where is that fire going? It's coming right for us. And it would have been, in a certain sense, right for the Lord to consume the people. That, uh, they'd all transgressed against the law. They were all sinners, um, unjust, deserving of wrath like the rest. God would have been just to do that, but that was not at all his intention in bringing fire down from heaven. Look what it says. Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And what a wonderful point this is, <laughs> that instead of the fire of God coming down on the people, it came down on the offering. You know, that makes us think of the cross, right? I mean, instead of the wrath of God, the fire of God's wrath falling on me, it fell on the offering. It fell on the sacrifice, the Lamb of God there on the altar of Calvary. And it says, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. If you could just imagine what this looked like, uh, this glory. We tried to imagine it last week when Moses saw the glory of the Lord. Can you just imagine the glory 
filling the house, uh, light and uh, in particular, and probably clouds uh, accompanying that light. And um, what an awesome sight to witness there. It says in verse 2 that the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. The Lord had taken his place. The Lord had moved into the temple. And then in verse 3, this uh, really makes the scene so wonderful. When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement. Can you picture that? Can you just picture this scene? What a glorious scene this is. As God's people bow down their faces, their faces are down to the ground, down to the pavement, and worshipped and praised the Lord, saying, He is good, for His mercy endures forever. It's the great point uh, in time in the history of the nation of Israel. One of the high points, no doubt, as the Lord takes his place in their midst and they worship him. But really, it's something that he says in his prayer. If you go back to chapter 6, that's really going to catapult us into the future. Something he said in his, in his prayer. Look at verse 32. So now we're going back just a few moments in time here. Chapter 6 and verse 32. This is in the midst of, or breaking into the midst of Solomon's prayer. He says, moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when they come and pray in this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place, of course, heaven is truly his dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. I wonder... As we go forward from here, I wonder if Solomon really knew what the future would hold in regard to this idea of foreigners, strangers from faraway places coming to the temple. Very appropriate for the tribes of Israel to come. Uh, very appropriate that that was his redeemed nation. That were his people. They would come to the temple. They would make their offerings. They would worship there. They would sing the psalms. They would rejoice and celebrate the feast there. But foreigners, strangers from the nations that they would come. I wonder if Solomon really knew what would happen in the future. And that not just, you know, okay, here's a stranger among us here. And, oh, that's nice. You know, and here's maybe next time, oh, there's uh, this family. They came from over in Egypt and Oh, maybe the next time, oh, there's someone from Assyria, just here and there. Maybe that's the way it was. But the thought that we're heading towards is that the whole world, all the nations are going to stream to that place to worship Him. 
I wonder if Solomon knew this as he said these words. Uh, I kind of laughed to myself thinking when I, when I get to heaven, Solomon's going to have a word with me. He says, I knew what I was talking about, Scott. <laughs> I knew what I was talking about. Why are you uh, wondering if I, if I really knew what was going to happen? Um, maybe, maybe, that'll have, maybe that'll be the case. But did he know? Did he really know uh, the extent to which the people from the nations were going to come to worship the Lord? Uh, this brings us into the subject of the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ. The Old Testament is speaking everywhere about him, even in places that the Jewish reader would not have even expected. And the Holy Spirit takes verses from the Old Testament, like, out of Egypt I called my son. And uh, the, Jewish w- the Jew would say, that is speaking of the Messiah? It's just everywhere. Everywhere to be found is this foretelling of this one who would come and he would come and there would be glory. He would come and there would be honor. He would come and there would be power and a kingdom and greatness. And that's, of course, right, what everyone was expecting when Jesus showed up on the scene. They were not expecting the son of David to be a suffering servant. And oh, the, the scriptures, there's so many places in the New Testament where it just talks about this uh, idea of, like Jesus, I mean, maybe on the road to uh, Emmaus is one of the best places to go to, where they're so confused about this one who they thought was going to redeem Israel, and he has died, and now the women have come, and they told us that he's been risen from the dead, and they're so confused, and Jesus comes alongside them and says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have written, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and through all the prophets, he expounded to them the things concerning himself. And he went from one place to another to another, showing the suffering of the Messiah. I I would like to maybe meet up with a a Jewish person who doesn't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They're still waiting for one. They reject him and just ask them, would would you entertain the possibility of just reading through your scriptures, just open up to the possibility that your scriptures speak of a suffering Messiah. Just give it a chance because it's everywhere. In picture form and plainly, it's everywhere. And so Jesus has come and fulfilled those portions of his suffering. But then there's the glory that will follow. And so the Jews were right to be looking for that. Absolutely right to be looking for that. Especially when you think of the son of David. The son of David. Solomon. <laughs> um, we know another son of David, don't we? It's so cool. This, this stuff is just... What it, remember Jesus said to, uh, to them, this was the final question he had because they couldn't answer it and they didn't want to ask him any more questions because they were likely very embarrassed before the people that he would uh, stump them so well. But he asked them, he said, uh, concerning the Christ, whose son is he? It's kind of like a Geico commercial. It's like everybody knows that. (laughs) Son of David. Everybody knows who the Messiah is. He's the son of David. And then Jesus asked that question. Well, if he's his son, how does David by the Spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. If he then is his son, how is he his Lord? 
I didn't know what... It's true. If he's just the offspring of David, then why does David call him Lord? See, he's not just the offspring of David, right? He's David's Lord. The last book of our Bible, the last chapter of our Bible, Jesus speaks of himself as what? He says, I am the root and the offspring of David. I am the root of David. David came from me. But I'm also the offspring of David. I came from David. (laughs) And you know, they're like, wait, wait, wait. How is that even possible? But we understand. Jesus is a son of David. But he's David's Lord as well. And that's going to come up again. This whole idea that Jesus Christ is the son of David and he's going to reign. There was no reign like Solomon. I mean, even with Solomon's reign, it didn't fulfill all the prophecies, all the promises that uh, the Lord had for his people. But what a reign Solomon had. And in that way, he pictures not like David, who was a man of war. We're going to get to that. When the Lord Jesus comes, he's going to war. But after he goes to war, he's going to be a man of peace. and He's going to reign just like the son of David. But there is going to be major resistance, and we need to touch on that. Uh, And for that, the best place to probably go is Psalm 2. When he came the first time, there was resistance. And when he comes the second time, there will be resistance. Now, I think most of us are probably in agreement when I say this. Uh, We're on the same page that we are not talking about the rapture, his coming. We are talking about the second coming when uh, he comes all the way to the earth uh, and his feet touch on the earth again. We're talking about that part of his second coming, not the rapture. The rapture will have already happened. So that's what we're thinking on when we say his coming will be met with resistance. The rapture will have already happened by them. So here it speaks to us plainly of that. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. The first phrase is, why do the nations rage? Why do the nations rage? So the Gentiles, the nations... Not Israel, the nations, all the other countries of the world. Why are they raging? The imagery here that's really fun to imagine because it just helps us to understand it is the idea of a sea raging, waves coming up. Uh, The wind blowing and the waves picking up and smashing against each other. And it's a picture of the nations. It's just a picture of them rising up against one another, crashing against one another. Uh, there was someone who did a study. Um, they figured out between, uh, let me see, what were the dates? Um, between fifth, uh, from 1500 B.C. to 1860, the year 1860. So, um, so it's like uh, 30, about almost 3,500 years, let's say. 3,500 years. Someone just studied history and they found out how many years of peace we had and how many years of war we had. And for every one year of peace in that 3,500 years, there were wars 13 of those years. So one year of peace for every 13 years of war. See, that characterizes the world. That characterizes the nations. That's what the nations are like. They go to war. 
they rise up against each other like the waves of the sea. They're never still. They're always restless, and they're crashing against each other. There's a little, and this is, if I do this, I won't finish, but that little picture of uh, the disciples in the boat. Here's this remnant of Jewish believers, and the waves are just crashing all around them into the boat, and they think they're going to perish. But the Lord is there, and he stills the waves. He tells them, I'm getting a little ahead here, but he'll tell them, peace, be still. So in a day to come, the nations will be raging in Israel. Uh, this believing remnant will be in fear. That how are we going to survive through all of the storm of all the nations rising up? But the Lord will come <laughs> and he will speak peace to the nations and he will quiet them. Just as he did that day on the sea, he made it so still, so quiet. And the disciples were glad because they were safe. They rage. There's a verse in Isaiah that says, Woe to the multitude of many people who make a noise like the roar of the seas and to the rushing of nations that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. So there's this idea of the nations raging like the sea in a storm. And it says, And the people plot a vain thing. Whatever it is that they're, they're coming together to do, it's, it's going to be empty. It's going to be futile. The kings of the earth, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, Yahweh, and against his anointed. Who's the anointed? What, what is that? That's the Messiah. That's Christ, the anointed one. And the nations are raging. They're coming together. They're, they're bringing their most brilliant minds and they're coming up with the most uh, just ingenious plan that they can come up with that they can fight against him. They're plotting. They're counseling to take action against Yahweh and against his anointed. And this is what they say in verse 3. Let us break their bonds and pieces and cast away their cords from us. It's like they're saying... Their reign over us, their, their authority over us, their control over us, we don't want it anymore. We don't want their influence. As Christians, it's like we love the influence of God in our lives. We want the influence. We want him to move and work in our lives. But these, they say, just leave us alone. We don't want any of your influence. We want to shake free of any of your authority. Just leave us alone. What's the Lord's response? He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. Thank you. <laughs> he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. He just regards them like with mockery. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his Deep displeasure. Mm. Resistance. Resistance. Rebellion. They're basically saying, leave the world to us. Leave the world to us. This is our place. You stay there. You can be a heavenly people. You can have your heavenly country and your heavenly city. But we want the earth. And we will fight for it against you, that we may keep it. 
But it's going to be to no avail. Whatever plan they come up with, however brilliant it is, it's going to come to nothing. Let me read you some verses. I won't have you turn to them because I'm going to go through a a number of places that bring up this idea. Um, The first place I'm going to read is Isaiah 17 where we read, Woe to the multitude of many people who make a noise like the roar of the seas and to the rushing of nations that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. The nations will rush like the rushing of many waters, but God will rebuke them, and they will flee far away and be chased like the chaff of the mountains before the wind, like a rolling thing before the whirlwind. Then behold, that even tide trouble, and before the morning he is no more. Psalm 21, after we, uh, actually that's Psalm 22. Psalm 21 says, They intended evil against you. They devised a plot which they are not able to perform. Psalm 33, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. Nahum. Nahum. What do you imagine against the Lord? Yahweh. He will make an utter end. Affliction shall not rise up a second time. You realize the potency of those words. Affliction will not rise up a second time. There's this one that makes me think of this story. One time David went down to Saul. Saul was sleeping in the camp and he brought one of his mighty men with him. And uh, the Lord had put a deep sleep on the people. And there was Saul's spear next to his head. And uh, the man that was with David says, Just let me take that spear. I will thrust it through him. I won't have to strike him a second time. You realize the kind of men that were with David. These were mighty men of war, valiant in war. And he says, listen, I just need one stroke. I won't have to raise the spear up again and strike again. If a man knows how to overcome, to defeat his enemy so quickly, so absolutely, Certainly the Lord does. You remember like when Mo, I, just this imagery of the Lord as a warrior, even we see it when the children of Israel come out of uh, Egypt after they go through the Red Sea. We see there in that very song of Moses that the Lord is a man of war. Right after he overthrew all the Egyptians. Isaiah 64, it's like Isaiah speaking on behalf especially of the nation of Israel in a, in a future day. It's like he's aching and he says, oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence. Just like when that Lord descended on Mount Sinai and the whole mountain was quaking underneath him. As fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. Psalm 46, the nations raged, the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice, the earth melted. Come, behold the works of the Lord who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. And then you know what comes next? Very famous words. Be still and know that I am God. It's what power, right? What a, what a scene to imagine as the Lord comes. He removes 
every instrument of war, it is a time of peace after he puts down the enemy. And he says to the nations, be still, be quiet. You're raging sea, not while I'm here. You will be quiet. And it goes on to say, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. So many more. Um, i give you one more. Psalm 93. The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed. He has girded himself with strength. Surely the world is established so that it cannot be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their waves. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, than the mighty waves of the sea. However the nations rage, whatever plot they come up with, whatever resistance they give to the Lord, it will be for nothing. He will still those waves and overcome his enemies. They will be made a footstool under his feet. Look at verse seven or verse six. How could I skip verse six? Oh my goodness. What's the end of all of this? Uh, what's the result of it? All, all of this friction, all of this war, all this resistance and rebellion, this conflict. What does it all end with? Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. God is going to put his son on that hill and no resistance will keep him from that. He will absolutely reign on that holy hill of Zion. All resistance will be futile. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Wait a second. This anointed one, this king who is going to reign and have glory and put down all of his enemies, he's also a son. See, that's no trouble for us, right? <laughs> that's no trouble for us. We, we know who that is. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. See, this is why, this is why the wicked cannot have the earth. It doesn't belong to them. It doesn't belong to them. They can't say, you stay there, we'll stay here, and if you're coming to take the earth, we're going to fight you because we want to keep the earth. And it's as if God would say, it doesn't belong to you. It's mine. In another place it says, everything under heaven is mine. <laughs> You've got to love the statements like that because you realize how true they are. For us to say things like that, it's out of place. But for God to say, everything under heaven is mine. It's not yours. And I'm giving it to my son. It's his inheritance. I'm giving him the ends of the earth as his possession. So you can't have it. It reminds us of Canaan. Canaan, first and foremost, is the Lord's. It's the Lord's. It's his land. And he was giving it to his people, Israel. But what happened? In the land of Canaan, all those who were living there, they heard the word. The Gibeonites are probably the best testimony of that. They heard the word, or Rahab. They heard what God had done. They knew that God was giving them the land. But instead of getting out there, God was even sending hornets in to chase them out. Get out. This is my land, and I'm giving it to my people. But they 
wanted to fight. That's what I love about the Gibeonites. They may have done it deceitfully. They tricked the Israelites, but they didn't want to fight the Lord. They didn't want to fight the Lord's people. It was his land. He was giving it to whom he wanted, and they just didn't want to fight. And so in that sense, they're to be admired. Picture of Canaan now, this whole world. The whole world, uh, it belongs to the Lord, and he's going to give it to his son. It belongs to Yahweh. But some will fight for it. And oh, the foolishness of that. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. And this seems to be that point of time when the Lord is reigning over the earth. Maybe it seems strange to you to think, well, if the Lord's reigning over the earth and he's the king over the whole earth, why are there other kings? Well, you remember one of the names of the Lord, one of his titles? (laughs) All right. What is he? He's the king of kings. Uh, You've got to love how all this just fits together so beautifully. He's the king of kings. So the exhortation is, Be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. Oh, the sun again. The sun again. Upon, the, upon his shoulders, the government will rest, right? Unto us a son is giving. Who is this son? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And they will have to, the kings of the earth and nations of the earth, at this future day that we are thinking about, after the rebels are put down, they will have to show public affection to him. If they don't, if they don't respect him, if they don't honor him, it's going to be trouble. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Psalm 22. That was the one I was thinking of before. This psalm is famous to us, right, because of the suffering of Christ that this portrays famous way this psalm begins. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Actually, James, I liked your thought this morning that he was alone in ways that we cannot comprehend. But his suffering is over. And this psalm, it doesn't leave us there like you look in your black book and a lot of times you'll see Alfred P. Gibbs has written one more verse. (laughs) One more verse because sometimes the songs, they just, they left us at the cross. They left us at his death, at his burial. So Alfred P. Gibbs says, "Uh, we got to add one more verse to this and write about his glory. Look for it and you'll see it. Verse 4, Alfred P. Gibbs. And this psalm is like that. It doesn't leave us with his suffering, but it goes on to that. Look at verse 27. And this is after the rebellion After his enemies are put down, the Lord is reigning. He's here. And it says in verse 27, All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. This day is coming. Many of us, I don't know, there might be some who might want to spiritualize this and not take it literally, but I know that I do, and many here, we take this literally. Just as Mary's 
what Mary heard from the angel Gabriel. She literally had a son. He was literally great. He literally was the son of the highest. And he will also literally sit on the throne of his father David. He will literally rule over the house of Jacob. And literally of his kingdom there will be no end. He's going to rule over the nations. And this is found everywhere. And again, I won't have you turn just for sake of time. I'll give you the references and you can look at them at another time. But let me just read a few portions to you. Uh, this first one is Isaiah 66. It says, And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. Psalm 66. Make a joyful shout to God, all the earth. Sing out the honor of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your works. Through your great, the greatness of your power, your enemies shall submit themselves to you. All the earth, all the earth shall worship you and sing praises to you. They shall sing praises to your name. Psalm 86, all nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and you do wondrous things. You alone are God. Psalm 96, give to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world also is firmly established. It shall not be shaken. He shall judge the peoples righteously. Let the heavens rejoice and the earth be glad. Let the sea roar. This is in a good way. Let the sea roar and all that is in it. Let the field be joyful and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the woods will rejoice before the Lord. And why? Why is there so much joy in nature? I mean, the mountains, the sea, the woods, everybody's just happy. The fields are singing. It's just it's a great time. Why? For he is coming. <laughs> he is coming and he is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. Like, do it like what this world is going to be like. When he is here, when he is reigning. And we understand in the book of Revelation, Satan has been cast into a bottomless pit. He's bound there. Satan doesn't even, he's not even roaming the earth. And the whole world is going to learn righteousness. The whole world is going to learn righteousness because the Lord's judgments are going to be in it. And the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is going to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. People are going to know him. They're going to worship him. And the kinds of crime and vileness and grief and sorrow that we see in our day, it's just not going to be. He's going to rule with a rod of iron. And that is something to rejoice over. Even nature is rejoicing. They're like, I haven't drunk up the blood of someone murdered for years now. That's the imagery sometimes you get in the Bible that the earth is like drinking up the blood of the slain. And they, it's just, Canaan thrust out, threw up, right? It, 
It vomited out the inhabitants of the land. The land was like, I can't stand these people anymore. All the violence and all the bloodshed, just get them out. In that day, though, the the world, it's not going to have any convulsions like that because the Lord will be reigning. Jeremiah chapter 3 says, At that time they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall be gathered unto it to the name of the Lord to Jerusalem. Psalm 72. We'll just have a few more minutes and maybe two more passages. Psalm 72. going to be a great day. It's just going to be something wonderful. The Lord will be exalted. He will be reigning in everyone. I wonder if Solomon had any idea uh, that the nations were going to come. Well, this psalm here, some of you may have in your Bibles, it says a psalm of Solomon, but I'd like to submit to you, and I think some of the Bibles may have it, it's a psalm for Solomon. So David writing to his son. In fact, if you look at verse 20, uh, the last verse of Psalm 72, it says the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. So think with me back to this whole idea of the son of David, right? Solomon is the son of David. Legitimately, Solomon is the son of David, right? Um, but the Lord Jesus Christ is also the son of David. So what we're about to read here, I'm telling you in my mind as I read this, I'm like very quickly, I'm moving from Solomon. I can understand some of these things being said about Solomon. He was a great man. He had a great reign, a great kingdom. There was a lot of glory associated with it as the son of David. But uh, we're going to start to read some things. We're like, you know what? I, I got to move beyond Solomon. I got to be thinking about a greater than Solomon. I got to be thinking about the son of David, the Messiah. Look, it says, give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. That might be very fitting to think of David saying this about his son Solomon. He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. By the way, we won't have time to read this whole psalm, but if you go on and read the rest of it, you'll see that one of the things that characterizes the Lord's reign here on the earth is his care for the poor, his care for the oppressed. It's just magnificent to see how much this gets brought up. So if your heart aches for those who are underprivileged, if your heart aches to help those who are poor and trodden down, if that's your heart, rejoice in this day because the Lord's going to take care of them. The mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. Yeah. And maybe, you know, Solomon, this, uh, this characterized his kingdom to some extent, but let's read on a little more. They shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. Now, wait a second. I think we're moving beyond Solomon here. He shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. Okay, Solomon was a pretty great guy, but uh, I mean, are we still talking about Solomon here or are we talking about Christ? In his days, the righteous shall flourish. What a wonderful statement. In his days, the righteous will flourish. An abundance of peace until the moon is no more. Now see, we're, we're moving beyond Solomon. And definitely here, verse 8, he shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river. 
I think that would be the Euphrates to the ends of the earth. See, now, now, we're, not ta- now we're not talking about Solomon. Now we're not talking about Solomon. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him, and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. And here we go. This is what we finish on for this psalm, verse 11. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. Again, it's very appropriate to think of God's people serving him. Very appropriate to think of Israel, his redeemed nation, bowing down before him. But this is the whole world. This is all the nations coming before him, serving him, bowing down before him. In the last place, this is a fun one to really end with. Go to Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah chapter 14. Um, you know, I just have to make at least this little comment here before you read this because um, it's just an important point. It's a whole other subject that I got verses on. We just don't have the time to look at it. But uh, let me just say this, that, and I can show you verses um, afterwards on this, but When we think about the Lord's exaltation, when we think about him being lifted up, there's something else, there's someone else that at this time, in this future day, we have to see also being lifted up with him. And that's Israel. That's Israel. It says that one day they're going to be the head of the nations and not the tail. And it is his pleasure to be glorified in them. And so when we think of the Lord's exaltation, he's going to lift up his people, Israel, as well. So that when we think of the resistance offered up to the Lord, we think of the resistance that will also come against his people on that day. Just as very common, uh, a very uh, familiar passage to us, right, where the Lord Jesus appears to Saul of Tarsus, as Saul is persecuting Christians. And what does he say to Saul? Why do you persecute me? So when you... When you go against his people, <laughs> you know, you're going against him. And there's a day coming when he's going to have had enough of that. He's going to have had enough of that. And he's going to come to rescue them. Yeah, two-thirds, as Zechariah tells us, two-thirds are going are to perish. But one-third he's going to bring through the fire and they're going to say, this is our God. And he's going to say, these are my people. So this verse speaks to not so much the resistance to the Lord, but I hope uh, and I can prove a little more on, on that to you afterwards that if it's a resistance against his people, it's also a resistance against the Lord. So verse 16, it says, It shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. The day is coming when all the nations, after the resistance rises up and the rebellion and the war, and the Lord comes with a sword coming out of his mouth, his eyes will be like a flame of fire, his robe will be dipped in blood, and he'll be riding on a horse, not on a 
donkey. He'll be riding on a horse because he's coming to make war. And on his head are many crowns. And on his thigh and on his robe is written the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And all the nations are gathered together. And they're gathered together against him. And he calls the birds, come and I have a feast for you. You shall eat the flesh of captains and of kings. And he lets that sword go forth from his mouth and strikes the nations down. And all who are left of all those nations, they will come and they will worship the Lord. They will worship him. It seems good to say that all who enter into that millennial kingdom, that kingdom of God, at that point, they will be those who have trusted in God. But they, I know this might sound crazy to some people, but they're going to have the ability to have children. Those who made it through the whole tribulation and they entered alive into the, into the kingdom of God in the sense of the millennial kingdom, they will be able to have offspring and they will have offspring. And it's that offspring that will eventually rise up in a rebellion when the devil is released from this bottomless pit, he will go out into the four corners of the earth and gather up another rebellion. They will march against the holy city and uh, fire will come down from heaven and consume them. You can read that in Revelation chapter 20. But all the nations that are left, they are going to come. They're going to come and worship the king. I mean, for us, like to think of his honor, to think of his glory, to think of him reigning and power and everyone acknowledging him for who he is, if it at all makes our hearts sad today to see him despised, if it at all makes us grieve to see him rejected, his name taken in vain, for us to see this day when he's lifted up and honored, Jesus takes the highest station. Oh, what joy the sight affords, we sing. It's going to be... Wonderful. If we can enter into the joy of anticipating this just a little bit, uh, when when the day comes, brothers and sisters, we're going to be, <laughs> it's going to be something. We are going to be so very joyful at his exaltation here in the place that he was so despised. goes on to say, if any one of those nations does not come to worship the Lord, Kind of interesting, right? The next verse says, if certain nation doesn't come to worship the Lord, you know what, what's going to happen to them? They're not getting rain. <laughs> They're not getting rain. It'll be so clear. Today, the rain comes down and nobody pays any mind what a blessing it is. It's his witness, right? The book of Acts tells us. He's done good and gave us a witness, the rain even, of his kindness to us. And that day, people will know where the rain is coming from. <laughs> people will know who has the authority over that. And for those who will not come to worship, they won't be getting any rain. It's going to be a wonderful day for those who love the Lord and want to see him honored. And I want to finish just with this illustration. Finish with this. So imagine yourself, you're in the millennium. uh, And uh, it wouldn't be us as the church so much as someone who's having children in the millennium. uh, And uh, the whole world's going to worship the Lord. That's what you... You, even if you don't want to. There might be a little bit of resistance in the heart of some, uh, but they're not going to show it openly. <laughs> they better kiss the sun uh, and show affection for him. But everyone's going to be going to worship the Lord. And so you imagine a little child growing up in the home and, and uh, the child gets old enough and says to his mother, Mom, where's everybody going? Why is everybody leaving? Why is everybody packing? Where are they going? So she says to her child, she says, 
They're going to see the king. Who's that? Oh, he's a great king. (laughs) He's a great king. He's a glorious king. I've seen him. I've heard him teach. He's a wonderful king. He gives us the reign. He's glorious and he's wise. And so the mother goes on and tells her child on and on and on about the king. And then the day comes when the child is old enough to go himself. (laughs) He makes the journey to Jerusalem. He goes to see the king. He's heard stories. He's heard stories about this king. Now, I don't know if you could see where I'm going with this. He's heard stories about this king. And now he's going to see for himself. And maybe when he gets there, he says something like this to him. You exceed the fame of which I heard. It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe the words until I came and saw with my own eyes. And indeed, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity exceed the fame of which I heard. Those are the words of the Queen of Sheba, right? No more breath left was left in her. When she saw, she was like, where's my breath? I can't find it. And so will the people be as they come from all over the world, just as the Queen of Sheba did. She was a foreigner, a stranger. Where did she come? She came to Jerusalem. Who did she come to see? Son of David. <laughs> she came to see the Son of David. Let's pray. My gracious God and Father, we're just uh, delighted to think of these future days. Um, and uh, some part of it, maybe it uh, offsets us a bit to think of our Lord coming as one, coming to make war, uh, scenes of bloodshed and uh, just a war. Um, but uh, you are so very kind and gracious and long-suffering and It's amazing for us to read the book of Revelation and see all of the mighty signs and wonders that you are going to do, and yet still they will blaspheme you. Still they will not turn from their sexual moralities, from all of their sinful behavior. They will absolutely determine to remain your enemies. And so what else can you do but to put them down so that your son can come and reign over the earth and bring in righteousness and peace And what a reign it's going to be. What glory it will be for him. And we, as your people, will just rejoice. It makes us rejoice to just think about it. But when that day finally comes, wow, our hearts will no doubt be overwhelmed. Just so very glad, rejoicing to see our Savior honored and glorified and worshipped by the whole world. So we look forward to this. We pray that your Spirit helped us to look down the corridor of time and see the truth of these things that are yet to come. And we look forward to them. So uh, we love our Savior, and it's our joy to think of him being exalted. Lord Jesus, we love you, and uh, we look forward to you coming even for us. And uh, we just give thanks in your name. Amen.